Hi, welcome to TheAnalysis.News. I'm Paul Jay. In a minute, we'll be back with Larry Wilkerson to discuss the role of the United States in destroying Afghanistan. Please don't forget the donate button. Without your financial support, we can't do this. As the Taliban assert full control over Afghanistan, mainstream media is mostly discussing when the U.S. withdrawal should have taken place and was the withdrawal properly planned. There's very little conversation about why the United States is in Afghanistan in the first place. It's taken as a given that after 9-11, the United States had to invade in order to defend its national security interests, and even that's a dubious prospect. Many experts back at the time advocated a police-style action in Afghanistan, not an invasion, which was likely illegal under international law. But what about the question, why was there a 9-11 in the first place? Why is there a Taliban? Why is there an Al-Qaeda? Those questions don't get discussed at all on corporate media. At least I'm not hearing it. The answer begins with U.S. policy since the Second World War, which has been to assert global dominance, and especially in the region of the Middle East and Eurasia. That is the root of the issue here, a vision articulated by President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, in his book, The Grand Chessboard. He called for American global hegemony and the need for American dominance in Eurasia to achieve that. The weakening of the Soviet Union was the prime objective, and anything that achieved that was justified, including the use of Pakistan to arm rural Afghan jihadists against the pro-Soviet government of Afghanistan in order to induce a Soviet invasion and their own Vietnam-style quagmire. The Afghan communist government had infuriated tribal leaders with edicts that allowed girls to go to school and women to work. That's supposedly an objective the Americans supported. Although life in major cities was quite modern, with women enjoying basic rights that used to go to school in pants and skirts, not burqas, the communist government also alienated many urban Afghans with their bureaucratic and repressive rule. An armed insurgency developed in the countryside amongst poorly armed tribal forces. It was this rural opposition that was armed with modern weaponry by the United States under the Carter and then much more under the Reagan administrations. And with the cooperation of the Pakistan military and ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Agency, it's here that U.S. policy sacrifices Afghanistan's organic modernization for a victory in the Cold War. 30 years of misery, civil war, and medieval backwardness are a direct consequence of U.S. Imperial Cold War strategy. The process of asserting such global military dominance, while a very profitable one for the military and fossil fuel industrial complex, doesn't even serve the interest of empire very well, let alone the American people who sacrificed their daughters and sons. In reality, one can look from Vietnam to the Iraq wars, as the best examples of that. Attempts at military dominance have mostly ended in debacles. All that being said, it seems the real objective is the process, not the outcome. It's all about the money-making, the trillions of dollars that flow into the coffers of the very rich. 
be damned how many lives are lost along the way. As much as this imperial policy has failed to achieve its stated objectives, the thinking of geopolitical hegemony still runs deep in the American elites, not only because it's profitable and it does help maintain a certain amount of commercial global dominance, but because they still believe they are the chosen nation, the exceptional nation. Of course, the whole weight of American culture works to make ordinary Americans believe it too. Hopefully one of the positives that comes out of the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan is something that was talked about after the Vietnam War, which is a fatigue amongst the American people for more military intervention. In a 1997 document produced by the Project for a New American Century, written by a bunch of neocons that wound up running the Bush-Cheney foreign policy, they talk about this Vietnam syndrome. They even talk about the need for a new Pearl Harbor to energize American people to support military interventions. Well, they got their new Pearl Harbor on 9-11. It must be added that Senator Bob Graham, who was the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee and co-chair of the Joint Congressional Investigation into 9-11, believed these attacks were allowed to take place and even facilitated by the Bush-Cheney White House. More on that another time. After seeing the scenes of this evacuation debacle in Afghanistan, hopefully there will now be an Afghan syndrome. The U.S. did not fail at nation-building in Afghanistan. It succeeded in nation-destroying. The well-being of the Afghan people was never the American objective, and to blame the Afghans for a narco-economy and the Taliban back in control is the height of hypocrisy. I think the U.S. and other NATO countries owe the Afghan people reparations. Now joining us to talk about the historical context and current situation in Afghanistan is Colonel Larry Wilkerson. He was the former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. Thanks very much for joining us, Larry. Good to be with you, Paul. So that's my rant. What's yours? Well, I was listening carefully. Um, the historical scope that you just briefly uh, touched on is a, is a place where every American should go. Uh, they don't. Uh, Gore Vidal said we're the United States of amnesia. We're not the United States of amnesia. We're the United States of ignorance. Amnesia assumes that you once knew something and then forgot it. <laughs> we never knew anything. Um, the American people, since about 1970, have totally abandoned what Franklin warned them about, an empire, a republic, if you can keep it. We haven't kept it. We haven't kept it at all. Um, people throw rocks at me all the time for blaming the American people. Well, I don't leave myself out of that. I was a, a member of the empire in good standing for a long time. It took me uh, 60 years, <laughs> roughly, to wake up. The history is difficult to understand and difficult to map and to come to points where you can say, well, I understand why that happened. I understand why that happened. Unless you understand the ignorance and the go-along nature of the American people. The American people like empire. Um, they like SUVs that guzzle down gas. They like their lifestyle, which consumes and consumes and consumes and supports crony predatory capitalism that's destroying the very earth they live on. They like that. Now, I'm not trying to condemn all of them. I'm not saying they all do, but a great portion of them do. 
certainly the, the 74 million or so who seem to continue to support Donald Trump do. And there are many more than that, uh, plenty of them on the Democratic side, too, who do. And it's all about money and power and power and money and being associated with money and power and having money and power and consuming because you have that money and power and on and on and on. This is not something that just came down out of heaven and lit on the United States of America. It's us. It's us from 1776, indeed, even before that, in the colonial period on, if you examine the history really, really closely. One, we like to kill. Two, we think it's honorable and patriotic to do it for the state. Three, we think people that provide the implements and equipment for that killing are great people and reward them significantly. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, United Tech, you name it, the whole list of the war merchants, the death merchants. This is not something that is um, developed in the post-World War II world, though in the Cold War, it gains its footing like it never had before and becomes so modern, it develops weapons that can kill millions at a single stroke. It's very historical. It's very American. It's us, Paul. Well, I have to agree and to some extent disagree or in, in a way. Meaning, it's history presented the United States because of its geography, uh, its, its particular development based on slavery and, and genocide of Native people. But I got to say, as someone who's a dual citizen, U.S. Canadian, that if Canada had had the opportunity, that you could have said that same thing about the us to Canadians. It's a process that developed in the United States for sure, but it used to be Britain that did this. It used to be Belgium that did this. Um, and and the, the development of, of the system of, of imperialism in the United States, uh, I don't think it's something certainly the American people mostly benefit from, uh, certainly a large portion do, uh, although less and less. I think uh, one of the things that happened in the 1980s is the American elites looked at the American working class and said, hey, hold on here. We don't actually have to share so much of our global plunder with American workers. They're getting weak. Look at the unions. And Reagan says, yeah, watch this, and does the air traffic controllers and uh, develops a process that takes unionization down by as much as 50% or even more. The sharing of the plunder has gone down. The objective interest of a large number of Americans in this system is far less than it used to be. But the, this patriotic fervor and, and, and this identity that people grow up as Americanism it's so deliberately nurtured. Uh, you, know, you go to school and you put your hand on your chest and you say, I, I pledge allegiance to this flag. Not to the people. You don't pledge allegiance to the people. You pledge allegiance to a flag that represents a state, a government that uh, is essentially the flag of the empire. Uh, all of that said, do you think we're in a moment now that maybe because, like in Vietnam, uh, that the, the debacle in Afghanistan might take some of the steam out of this uh, appetite for foreign military adventure. I would hope it would, but I lived through Vietnam um, and, I, and I've lived vicariously through our history. 
um, everything from the, as Grant said, probably the most egregious war in our history, the war with Mexico, which was total aggression, total aggression to aggrandize territory from Mexico um, to the present situation. And I take exception a little bit to what you were sort of historically summing there. Um, as Piketty has said, it's all about, in terms of human endeavor for almost 5,000 years in his book, Capital and Ideology, with an exquisite phrase, it's all about inequality regimes, whether it's uh, serfdom and feudalism or it's slavery or it's colonialism. Those are terms we've come to apply without really thinking about what they actually mean to those inequality regimes throughout that 5,000 years. Well, now the inequality regime is predatory crony capitalism. And it's led by the United States, though China is nipping, nipping right at our heels to be the lead crony capitalist country, predatory capitalist country in the world. And what we've done with that system, unlike that of slavery or colonialism or feudalism before them both, is we are destroying the planet. Not only are we destroying the planet with the rapacious nature of that predatory capitalism and the consumerism that goes along with it and the blind stupidity of those who do the consuming, we are also equipped for the first time in human history with the means at our own disposal to destroy ourselves completely. And of course, I mean nuclear weapons. Um, so we're at a point in human history that... Uh, I would not just describe as extremely dangerous, I would describe it as truly existential. I'm just not sure how much longer we're gonna last as a species. Yeah, well, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, to go back to this issue I raised in the beginning, this assertion of dominance of empire and the way, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was, uh, for people that don't remember, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, wrote a book. Henry called Kissinger, Grand... Act Two. <laughs> right. Uh, wrote a book called and, The Grand... And Zbigniew would agree to that, I think, because uh, that Henry, you, you can't look at Zbigniew, which I've done in great detail, without thinking that he had this image of Henry in his mind. I'm, I'm going to outdo Henry. Uh, actually, I, I'm going to be doing a, a commentary on all this in the next day or two. And I interviewed uh, Brzezinski uh, before he died. And I'm going to have some clips from that interview where he he defends uh, the arming of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan because his thesis uh, of his book, The Grand Chessboard, was essentially if you don't dominate Eurasia, you can't dominate the world. And it's in the world's interest for the United States to dominate the world rather than somebody else. Um, and it was under that rationale that they uh, essentially create the conditions for the rise of the Mujahideen, uh, the overthrow of the government in Kabul, and then the chaos of civil war in Afghanistan that killed perhaps as many as two million Afghans. And the Taliban rise as a force to try to restrain the uh, brutality of that civil war. And, to, and in the early days, is, is quite a popular force. In Afghanistan, there's there's two prongs to that too. I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, they created Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, and at the same time, because of our policies with respect to Israel and Egypt, they created Zawahiri. 
Aman al-Zawahiri, who was the real operational genius of al-Qaeda, while bin Laden could be the theoretician, the ascetic, the, you know, the monk almost, and do the things he did. He had a certain charisma about him from everyone I've talked to who interviewed him personally. Zawahiri was the tough little Egyptian doctor and who wanted nothing more than to just crush the leadership in Egypt and saw ultimately one way to do that was to crush the people who support them. Mm, we all know who that is and the people who support Israel. And we all know who that is. In fact, after Carter achieved the peace treaty, Sadat, and beginning in uh, Israel and Egypt, uh, then you had Zawahiri really on a rampage. And we built Al-Qaeda, for God's sake. Yeah, bin Laden was invited to Afghanistan by the CIA. Um, the, uh, but but the, I think what's really revealing about the current moment is that you know, I, I use this phrase often, I'll use it again. The United States th believes, the U.S., the people that sh make this policy believe, yeah, we do bad things, but we do it for good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of the things, the bad things was the creation of the Taliban, the creation of Al-Qaeda, but most importantly, the funding of the military dictatorship in Pakistan and the strengthening with billions of dollars every year of this military caste in Pakistan, that is the, uh, the real force that created the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And in fact, uh, last reporting I saw from people within Pakistan, large numbers of the uh, Pakistan military are in fact actual members of Al-Qaeda. And the, uh, the, the force of the ISI, the Pakistan Intelligence Agency, in creating and shaping uh, what took place in Afghanistan before and now. Um, in fact, I, I did a, a very unique interview when I was in Afghanistan making my Return to Kandahar film. Uh, I interviewed a, a guy who was on the Taliban Central Council. And this is in the spring. Uh, the interview took place of 2002. And he said after 9-11, they had a meeting where the uh, Central Council debated whether to hand bin Laden over or not, because the U.S., at least on the face of it, was threatening that if you don't hand over bin Laden, uh, we're going to come and overthrow you. And the Central Council, according to this guy who was a member of the Central Council, uh, had then quit. The Central Council decided they would hand over bin Laden to an Islamic country. And a lot of this actually I found verified by some reporting by The Guardian at the time. Uh, and then a representative of the Pakistani government came. Mullah Omar opposed sending bin Laden away. A representative of the pa Pakistani government came to another council meeting that was called by Mullah Omar and persuaded the council not to turn bin Laden over, to let him go. Pakistan has been engineering and manipulating this situation to a large extent. I, I wouldn't say the Taliban are their puppets, but Pakistan has enormous influence. All that being said, what I think is revealing about this moment is in spite of all the power of the United States and all the money, all the troops, they can't control Pakistan. As a result, they couldn't control the Taliban. This idea that they're going to dominate Eurasia, this whole thing's turned in quite the opposite of that. If, if any force is growing and in influence in Eurasia, it's China. And what you've just described is absent a principal feature 
if you don't include Saudi Arabia. Mm, because nice. Saudi Arabia funds and fuels a lot of what Islamabad does. And they do it under the table. And sometimes they do it above the table, like Mohammed bin Salman's recent trip to Islamabad to give them something in the neighborhood of 20 billion U.S. Um, they don't just hunt their hawks in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Baluchistan, the, the Saudi princes. They support everything that's happening that we would say we were against. They are the greatest Wahhabi sponsors of terrorism on the face of the earth, and they've got lots of money to do it. Um, wish I knew a list of the royals who are involved, but I'm absolutely convinced some of them are involved. It's not just the Wahhabist per se in Saudi Arabia. It's part of the government, too. This is the way both Pakistan and Saudi Arabia keep their bona fides alive in the radical Islamic world. And thus, as Sunnis contest the radical Islamic world in Tehran, it's a huge battle between the two forces that doesn't describe itself in territorial gain like the neoconservatives are constantly talking about. Oh, the Ark, Iran is creating across the Levant, you know, and so forth. That's crazy. It's all ideological. And it, it's a pretty fierce struggle. And when Turkey entered it, for example, on Qatar's side, when Mohammed bin Salman was trying to boycott and uh, ultimately choke Qatar, it got even wider. The Ottoman Empire was back. So we have a lot of contestants in this, and it's uh, it's a little bit different from the great game that the British and the Russians and others played in at that time. Um, it's got a lot of different components, the most dangerous of which is Pakistan's nuclear stockpile, which, as I've said many times, is probably the most likely unstable stockpile in the world. And one of the reasons the ISI and the Pakistani military go along with what the ISI is doing with regard to the Taliban is because they want to keep them roiled up in what is not a state, not in any way, fashion, or form. We should have realized this and never stayed in the first place. Kick out the Taliban, kick out al-Qaeda, whatever. But we should never stay to state bill in an entity that can't be a state. It's not a state. It's a group of tribes. Half those tribes live part in, in uh, Pakistan and part in Afghanistan. Some live in Uzbekistan. Some live in northern Iran. I mean, it's crazy. It's not a state. It's just a piece of territory that a lot of other states scramble over all the time, uh, particularly Pakistan. So you've got a situation there where, as in Baluchistan, for example, um, there's no real administration, there's no real government, there's no real central authority, there's no way to impact things other than through tribal leaders and through tribes. Uh, Akbar Ahmad Ibn Khaldun, professor of Islamic studies at American University, wrote a book called The Thistle and the Drone. And the thistle was the tribes. And not just there, but throughout the world, the Rohingya, for example, in Myanmar, Burma. Um, these tribes we're trying to extinguish. The empire can't tolerate tribes. It wants to extinguish, extinguish them. So does the Soviet Union, now Russia. So does China. Look at what they're doing to the Uyghurs. They want to get rid of these tribes because these tribes cannot be governed. They cannot be centrally ruled. They cannot be consumers in a predatory capitalist society, not the kind of consumers we like. They can't be slaves. So we don't like them. So we try to get rid of them. 40 case studies in that book, The Thistle and the Drum, between the introduction and the ending. And you look at all those case studies and you see Akbar Ahmed's point. The empire is trying to exterminate tribes. And the most potent tribes probably on the earth are right there. 
And we tried to do that. What a farce. One of the, I think, the big lies of what's being talked about now in Afghanistan, you know, this it was the Afghan military and Afghan political leadership that failed. Uh, of course, this Afghan leadership and uh, is is exactly who the U.S. put into place. Uh, the, uh, as much as I've been critical of mainstream media, uh, Nick Robertson from CNN, I thought, made quite a good comment. Uh, he, he said that after 9-11 and after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, uh, the demand of the Afghan people was, yes, get rid of the Taliban. And I was there in, in spring of 2002, and the Afghan people on the whole despise the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And it's, it's one a part of the historical record that doesn't get talked about is the extent to which the elders in village after village uh, were opposed to the Taliban and especially opposed to al-Qaeda. And they didn't like that the Taliban had made deals with al-Qaeda. And in fact, the response of al-Qaeda and the Taliban was to assassinate elders in the villages and assert their control. And this whole last 20 years has been a part of that process. But, but the development of Afghanistan as in a kind of normal development with a normal either capitalist economy or even socialist economy because there were indigenous uh, Afghan forces that wanted a socialist uh, Afghanistan. Uh, it was tied to the Soviet Union at the time. It's certainly, I think, debatable how socialist the Soviet Union was at that point. But at any rate, there was a normal, natural course of events going on in Afghanistan that was, I think this is the most important thing, urbanization, the urban centers were starting to assert control. There was a modernization process. Even the Afghan monarchy was a modernizing monarchy. It wasn't uh, trying to hang on to feudalism in Afghanistan. They were trying to modernize. Uh, when the governments, uh, the communist governments took power in Kabul, uh, some supported by the Soviet Union, some not. Uh, eventually, they invited the Soviet Union in. But the process of modernization, which included girls going to school, women being able to work, starting to have more urban, modern values, that was a process that was happening relatively organically in Afghanistan. And that's the process that the United States stopped by arming the countryside, arming the Mujahideen, arming this village ignorance, I, I don't know what else to call it. They allowed rural Afghanistan to dominate the urban centers and stopped the kind of network. Like I made this film, Return to Kandahar. Uh, my co-director, Nelifer Pazira, when she went to school in the 80s, in Kabul, she said people would have laughed if a, a girl showed up in a burqa. Burqas, you couldn't, you know, burqas are when women would come in from the villages. You know, you're, you're, you're describing, and I can't help but make this comparison because it's so uh, potent. You're describing Iran. You're describing what the Shah was trying to do at the end, however much Savak. CIA trained Savak and the CIA itself and Britain's intelligence services, and I'm sure others subverted that. Uh, the White Revolution and the Shah's attempt to fund that revolution to the point that it would be effective in Iran 
was aimed at the same thing. And what you're describing about Afghanistan being uh, the way it was at the time before the Taliban and others got in and corrupted it was pretty much the way Iran was. Um, and you know, what did Jerry Ford and Henry Kissinger do? They went to the Saudis and to OPEC and they got them to not raise the price on oil, which the Shah was counting on, counting on for funding his white revolution. And he was furious, and I don't blame him, because we killed that rise in price that would have funded that revolution in Iran. Now, there's no guarantee that the Shah would have had any more success with that than he did with previous attempts to modernize, but at least he was modernizing, and at least he was open to the West and to the better part of the West. Uh, our education, our culture, and so forth, it's not corrupted by guns and movies that kill everybody on the scene and so forth and so on. Um, so you're describing what was happening in a lot of these, again, tribal areas and places where that was the dominant uh, cultural architecture, if you will. Uh, Afghanistan, the same thing with a little bit deeper, perhaps, history and, and, and trouble, but we thwarted that. That's what the empire does. The empire does not want this to happen. The empire wants vassals. The empire wants people who are uh, readily accepting of its writ, won't contest that writ, don't dispute anything the empire wants to do in any significant sort of way, certainly not in a military way. Um, and what is it these people are doing who are, quote, terrorist, unquote, but attempting to respond to the empire's high-tech weaponry with what is low-tech but effective, as we've just seen in Afghanistan, for them. This is another point that uh, Akbar Ahmed makes and other scholars have made too. Um, the, the old adage about one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter is a little bit uh, too easy to, to roll off the lips, but there's a lot of truth in it. You know, if I'm standing out there in Palestine, for example, and I'm looking at one of the most modern militaries in the world, supported by the greatest military power on the face of the earth, almost without question. What am I going to do? I'm either going to kneel and be a slave for the rest of my life or be worse, killed. And that's a good possibility in Israel now. Uh, or I'm going to contest it. And the only way I can contest it is some form of what will be called terrorism when I do it. That's what we've created in the world. The uh, discussion coming on mainstream media, Biden's talking this way, uh, the, all the various foreign policy elites talk about the failure of nation building. Uh, I, it's such a lie. There was never an attempt at nation building. It was a nation destruction. It was, yeah. we don't give a shit what happens to the Afghan nation. Uh, it, was, it was tribal destruction, I think. That's what we tried to do. And, and others like Dostum, General Dostum, he who sprayed bullets into railroad cars full of human beings. And even to a certain extent, the line of Panjshir, Masood, who was combating all of them at one point in time, uh, trying to take over Kabul, trying to take over Afghanistan. One wonders what would have happened had he actually succeeded. All of those people were contesting a state, if you will. And it goes all the way back to the British and, and to the Russians and others. Um, Afghanistan is not a state. There, there's no way you can look at it and, and draw with a pencil on a map or any other way, conceive it as a state. It's a collection of tribes. Many of those tribes live in other 
quote, states, unquote, whether it be Iran, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, or whatever. Um, and they travel across borders as if they weren't there as well. They should, because that's a thousand years of history. Um, what was it? Was it Alexander who said it's easy to come into Afghanistan, but very difficult to leave? <laughs> yeah, well, he didn't have to worry about getting into a landlocked country the way we did. It's not exactly easy to get in if you're a modern military power like we are. But there's something in that. Uh, you're not going to leave the way you came in because it isn't what you think it is. It's very different. The other thing that's not getting talked about hardly at all and, and is so... Uh, at the heart to a large extent of what is being fought for here. Uh, and that's the poppy trade. The, the illegal, the, the drug industry in, in Afghanistan is probably the most important part of the GDP. I, I've seen all kinds of different numbers estimated, but there's not a heck of a lot other economy going on other than foreign aid. And the, the, while the Taliban did at one point close down the poppy trade before they were overthrown, uh, they certainly picked it up again, apparently, and it's now their main source of financing. Uh, apparently, one of the reasons why they've had such success in the uh, last few weeks, uh, of course, it's not really last few weeks, they've been pre preparing for this for months and years even, is they simply, one, paid their soldiers, whereas a lot of the Afghan army, national army, wasn't getting paid, and, and in the last few weeks, apparently, wasn't even getting fed. But they also went around in the last few months offering money to uh, people like Dostum's uh, militia, to troops, to uh, lower level officers. Well, where's all this money coming from? I mean, well, you know, they, the Taliban seem to have unlimited funds. Well, one's got to be poppies and perhaps also Pakistan. You see the young lady, uh, two tours in Afghanistan. Soldier, I think. I don't think she was a Marine. I think she was a soldier. But anyway, she wrote a piece. It was a brilliant piece, really. Visceral, gut-level piece. And she talked about the different policies that even she saw in the two years, you know, not back-to-back, -back, but different years she spent in Afghanistan. One time, we're eradicating all the poppies. Then we realized we were making the tribal leaders really angry and the farmers really angry. So we quit eradicating the poppies, and we started giving them fertilizer. And we gave them fertilizer in order to grow other crops. Well, what they did was sell the fertilizer to the Taliban, and the Taliban used the fertilizer to make IEDs. Then she talks about batteries, how we threw away all the batteries. They picked up the batteries. Batteries still had a little bit of power left in them. And hooked up in series, they had enough power to explode an IED. So they got their, their uh, explosive power for the IEDs. They also stole cell phones. I mean, she goes through all the things, the idiotic policies that each of the generals, and let me emphasize, each of the generals, we weren't in Afghanistan for 20 years. We were in Afghanistan each year, one after the other for a year with a general in charge of each one, a general who was later rewarded for his skills and talent by becoming a service chief or something else not fired for having failed to achieve the mission he was supposed to achieve in Afghanistan, or not listened to when he said, what are we doing here? Let's get out. What general said that? What American general in Afghanistan turned to the president of the United States and said, fire me. I'm coming home. This is impossible. It's not doable. This is stupid. It's ignorant. It's beyond stupid. None. 
So what do we say about these generals? Huh, I'll tell you what I'll say about them. This is a disaster. And it's a disaster that anyone with half a brain could have predicted, especially if they'd gone through what I went through from 2001 to 2005 with the George W. Bush administration. Um, never have I seen some such a collection of incompetence, such a collection of people who didn't know what they were doing and who nonetheless had the power of America behind them to do it. Um, you can't keep doing that over and over again. You ask if we learn from Vietnam. No. Did we learn from Afghanistan? No. Are we going to do this again? Yes. I think the, the, the key conclusion is that not only was there no attempt to quote unquote nation build, um, there was just profit making, including someday perhaps it will come out, but you can't export industrial amounts of poppies and and heroin and and the such without, without the american without uh, without the american uh, army knowing you're doing it you got to cross that you got banks that are laundering the money and people who are ripping profits off that drug trade that you just wouldn't believe i mean uh, you read Misha Glenny's book, McMafia, and you understand there are five to six trillion dollars in the black trade every year. A lot of that is trafficking in women and little boys and drugs and stolen autos and so forth. But then you think about that amount of money. Who's laundering that money? Well, the legitimate banks are laundering that money. The 12 banks that make up the Fed that people think is federal because it has a name federal. It isn't. It's 12 freaking private banks. And at the heart of that is BlackRock. And at the heart of that is what we've, we've just talked about. Man, I like it when Raytheon makes so much money and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all these other companies. Yeah, this of course. Stuff. They, cost, they talk about the, the cost of the Afghan war as if somehow this was charity to the Afghan people. Well, who the hell were they? Who were they paying all this trillions of dollars to? It was, a pittance went to the Afghan people. The rest goes to the manufacturers of the military equipment. And so on. It's it thieves of state is what Sarah Chase called it in her book. Thieves of state. The only thing she got wrong in there, but she's not really talking about the Afghan state as much as she is her own state. Well, just to conclude, I don't know if we're going to agree on this next thing or not, but here's what I think. What needs to be done now is one, America, the people the elites to whatever possible, at least that those of us that can have to acknowledge the real history of the Afghan war, why it's been not just a disaster for Americans, which to me is the least of the issue. It's destroyed Afghan society. And it's, it's destroyed the school system, the medical system. It's destroyed the lives of so many Afghan kids. Uh, throw in there Syria, throw in well, there Iraq well, to a certain extent, throw in there Libya. There's been country after country destroyed by this the same set of policies, essentially. But for now, I want to talk about Afghanistan. I think the United States, number one, owes Afghanistan reparations. I think the reparations, and it's not just Afghanistan, throw in Canada, throw in Germany, throw in Denmark, throw in you know, the NATO countries. That reparations fund could be used to try to influence the situation in a constructive way. In other words, don't hand any money over to the Taliban, 
but create a situation where here's this massive uh, reparations fund that can be used for schools, for education, tie the money to uh, apparently the Taliban today, yesterday are promising that women actually will have some rights, will be able to work, go to school. I, I, we'll see if it's true. It's possible there's a, a somewhat different uh, mentality in this version of the Taliban. But I think one thing that's True, as much as they are believers, the Taliban leadership are also, I think, interested in money-making themselves and have gotten certainly a taste for it with the control of the poppy crop. But if this infrastructure, uh, they don't even have to call it reparations, call whatever they want, but a, f a real subsidization that helps push Afghanistan towards a more modernization and, and an economy no sub-dependent on poppies, and two, do what a lot of NGOs have been recommending for years, offer to buy the poppy crop and use it for, use it for pharmaceuticals. And, and, and Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying to a certain extent, but I think the country that's equipped to do that, and please footnote this, endnote this with, we won't let them, we'll contest it every step of the way, is China. Yeah. Their main base road initiative experimented with in a 30 mile or so corridor uh, on the, essentially in Kashmir. It was so successful in calming a really volatile area until the PACs figured it out and the Indians figured it out and started messing with it, that if you were to allow China to do what it wants to do within that region, and that's its primary focus with its base road initiative, that's the primary focus, trillions of dollars behind it, then Afghanistan could be a benefactor of that. And whether that produced a state or just a series of wealthy, affluent, uh, peaceful tribes is irrelevant to me. I don't care if there's ever a state of Afghanistan. What I'd like to see is a peaceful Central Asia. Maybe it eventually gets wrapped up in a, a, a state uh, associated with Pakistan. Maybe it would calm Pakistan down a bit or with India or whatever, or maybe it's its own independent state. I, I, that, that would, that's hard for me to imagine given its history, but the Chinese are better equipped to do this, plus they got the money. And they have the relationship with Pakistan. Yes, and they have the fear that the Taliban and Pakistan, their partner in crime, might someday uh, look at the Uyghurs with a way that uh, they don't like them looking at them. That is to say they're Muslims and they're Muslims who could join the Islamic hordes, etc. Uh, they certainly demonstrated that capacity to a certain extent coming into Syria through Turkey and the fighters, 14,000, 15,000 of them. And now they're returning home, much to the Chinese chagrin, because they're battle hardened and they're trained and so forth and so on. And they're going into back into Xinjiang province. But this is a problem that could be attenuated a great deal, I think, by the Chinese just flooding the place with money and, and an effort to develop things and develop things that make sense, right. you know, not drugs, but develop uh, farming, develop industry, develop hydrology, everything about Afghanistan and about that region, Uzbekistan, no great shakes either, um, develop it all. There's a tremendous strategic asset, which is Afghanistan is, you know, they're calling it the Saudi Arabia of lithium. The development of new modern batteries is going to be all, all about. Uh, and who knows what else might be available there and what Chinese money might attract to that availability. 
but we'll be scared to death of it. Oh, the Chinese are making inroads on Europe. Oh, the Chinese are going to strip Turkey away from NATO. Oh, the Chinese are going to do this. The Chinese are going to do that. We'll work with them. Blinken, get your ass over to be at Beijing and get with Wang Yi and do something positive instead of talking every day about war with China. So then the last point we can talk about, because to do what you're saying, there has to be a demand from the American people to get U.S. foreign policy out of the hands of the military manu arms manufacturers and the fossil fuel companies, because that's where the opposition comes from. Yes, and it's going to continue to come from there. And it's got to be beaten back. And the only power I see with the, the composite necessity and energy and power to defeat them ultimately is the people. Democracy is what I'm saying. And yet I don't see it working. I don't see it working. All I see is the people continuing to do whatever. You know, I'm looking at the price of gas. They're gouging everybody right now. Gouging everybody. ExxonMobil, the, the Seven Sisters. I was working on a piece on that the other day. You know, the Seven Sisters, the oil company. Yeah, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. And at the same time, they're destroying the planet. And they're going to keep doing it until someone stops them. And it's not going to be the Congress. It's not going to be the president. It's not going to be the military. It's not going to be any of that. The only thing with the composite power to stop them is the people. And, and I don't see it happening. Well, let's hope it does, because if it doesn't, <laughs> we ain't going to have much, many people around on this planet. No, there certainly ain't going to be much of a democracy left either. All right. Thanks for joining me, Larry. Surely. Take care. And thank, thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Once again, uh, we need your financial support with donations. We need your help uh, growing, getting more people involved. So that means subscribing and uh, sharing the stories, and most importantly, get to our website and sign up on the email list. Thanks very much.